This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Hello. I would try to offer a greeting in Malaysian for this latest edition of the Paddock Pass podcast, but the slow remnants of jet lag means we'll have to do our best in English for now. Welcome to the show where we'll try and recap what we saw, heard and thought about the penultimate Grand Prix of the season and the first visit to Sepang in three years, another tight MotoGP face-off to wrap the end of the flyaways. Joining me in having unpacked his suitcase is Neil Morrison, a grizzled veteran of Grand Prix in Thailand, Australia and Malaysia in just a couple of weeks now. Um, which one stood out for you, Neil? Um, that's a good question. I'd probably uh, Phillip Island for the racing and for being on Phillip Island. Um, but I also had a fun time in Thailand, strangely enough. Malaysia, I think you're just in energy conservation mode by that stage, aren't you? It's like you've uh, switched your phone to flight mode because um, you're on 1% battery. That's kind of, you just want to get over the line. Um, but uh, yeah, I think Australia, Thailand as well were, were kind of fun weekends. Now, I asked you which Grand Prix you preferred, not which one you thought might get a winner for the Erta Grand Prix of the year, and you know, whereby you name several candidates, um, <laughs> as you usually would when you're trying to pick a race winner. But uh, yeah, thanks for the feedback anyway. Also running the ragged edge of the clock from Central European time, meaning his coffee machine was bashed harder than usual, is David Emmett. Fair play for all the excellent content on motomatters.com these days, Dave. Uh, you must have been swearing while you were typing sometimes. Uh, yeah, sometimes. I mean, I, and I will be perfectly honest, I wasn't getting up. Uh, uh, well, there, there were certain events for which I was not getting up, but there were others where for which I was I was getting up. So it was, you know, it was uh, depending on the time zone, it was do I get up for FP1 or do I get up for FP2? Um, Malaysia's pretty decent. Philip Island was absolutely brutal. Um, I did actually get up for the race for that and um, was, uh, well, it, it was absolutely worth it. That was only with MotoGP though, Dave, right? Because you were watching every single Moto2 and Moto3 FP <laughs> session through the weekend. Oh, yeah, yeah, obviously, obviously, just and snoozing FP4. through MotoGP. Good. I hope you're up Good. for FP4. <laughs> uh, I was? No, um, I can't remember. I can't remember. I'm, I'm fairly sure that I was because, you know, you know, it's FP4. Shameless promotion time as well in pointing out that OnTrackOffRoad.com has a new magazine segment out with excellent column writing by all three of us on this call and a Luca Marini interview as well as some insight into motorcycling and racing in China thanks to a catch up with Zen Zhu from CF Moto. Rob Gray, Polarity Photo's wonderful imagery can also be seen in the post. Our Paddock Pass podcast only just misses Steve actually who's on his way back from World Superbike in Argentina but that means he'll soon be delivering another show with Gordon and Charlie so watch out for that one. As ever, our output is possible thanks to Rental Street, a firm with a gluttony of accessories and first-class aftermarket pipes, pipes, parts for your road bike, not just off-road uh, and the rest of their fantastic collection for motocross. We've also got Fly Racing on board, of course, who have a full and enviable collection of street and off-road gear protection and apparel. The off-road Formula helmet as well, in particular is a winner anyway enough from me for a minute um neil over to you first what was your big moment from the uh, patronus grand prix of malaysia uh well first of all i had i think it's salaman Paggy is how you would do the greeting in uh, malaysia oh you show off yeah um <laughs> but my moment of the weekend was uh was probably in the first race of the day on sunday it was um that wonderful john mcphee pass on the last lap going from fifth to first in uh basically one turn and um, then the kind of madness that ensued after that into the final turn um, I thought that was pretty magical uh, 
we John hasn't been exactly having the best of times recently, despite you know decent result in Australia. Um, we both spoke to him on Saturday, and and uh, I think the the line he used for both of us was, "I just want to curl up into a ball and cry." Um, he was close to walking out in the team on Saturday because he just felt that um, his feedback was not being listened to. Um, it was kind of the story of his season. He had been like begging his crew chief to make some pretty major changes to the bike. There's no sharing going on within that garage. And um, yeah, he was just completely frustrated with uh, with his feeling on the bike and the lack of progress um, in recent weeks. And then for him to kind of pull it out of the bag like that was uh, was a big surprise. Yeah, pretty remarkable, I'd have to say. That's probably John's best ride in, um, in Moto3 and uh, a fine way to send off because he's leaving the class, obviously, in Valencia. Yeah, it was great that, you know, he made the move on turn 14 and then had the whole back straight to negotiate. And then you had a, a Yuma Sasaki pushing hard into the final corner. And I love John's line about, I was either going to win it, bin it, or like take my teammate out and we'll both crash. Uh, that was the options on the table and he managed to take that victory. I think that was the fourth of his career. And like you say, Neil, it was, it was a great kind of reply to what's been a pretty miserable season. I think John missed like was it five rounds with a, you know, broken vertebra, um, you know, a training accident thing. So it was, uh, yeah, it was hardly the season he envisaged joining the, the Husqvarna team there. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think it was, uh, it was a nice, um, yeah, nice reply to, to his crew chief, who obviously is losing his job after this weekend. So, um, yeah, he'll be maybe doing his own crew chief in Valencia. <laughs> Dave, we've all been talking and writing about the MotoGP title spat um, and another Ducati duel, of course, in the front of the Grand Prix in Malaysia. But uh, you've picked another particular dust-up. Uh, yeah, because it was reminiscent of, uh, uh, of a, a mildly interesting moment in motorcycle racing previously at Spang. Um I was watching the what moment Moto2 was that, Dave? <laughs> I'll get to it. I'll get to it. I was watching the Moto Two, uh, uh, the the Moto Two race, and um, all of a sudden we see uh, Jake Dixon start uh, really getting into it with Augusto Fernandez. Uh, Ayagura, I think, was off uh, was way off in the lead. Um, well, and he managed to throw it away. But we'll talk about that later on. Um, and, uh, you know, there was absolutely no quarter given or asked between Dixon and, and Fernandez. They were absolutely turned, knocking, you know, six shades out of each other. Um, and it really reminded me of watching Marquez and Rossi in 2015. Uh, Dixon had no, I mean, he has every right to do whatever he wants. You know, he's there to race. He's there to score for as many points as he, want, uh, as he wanted. Um, and it was fantastic and very entertaining to watch. Um, you know, he wasn't stepping back and stepping out of the championship fight sort of thing. He just like got on with it. And um, so I really enjoyed that. And I also particularly enjoyed the parallels with 2015. Uh, shall I hit the big red button on Dave for bringing up that subject? <laughs> Neil, what's your opinion? Uh, put a tick in the uh, column ad. Another uh, another episode done and another mention of uh, said uh, race in said year. We're going to get our own drinking game soon. I, like you say, Dave, I mean, there's two schools of thought, isn't there? I mean, Dixon's entitled to race whoever is on the track. You know, it doesn't matter if they're, you know, going for a world championship or they're, you know, 20th place. The other school is that, you know, maybe you should be a little bit aware of the surroundings or the circumstances going on around him. I mean, I was watching it from the press room in, in Sepang and I was... Um, trying to understand it because I didn't really see the the sense of it because if Dixon had 
knocked off Fernandez. Um, you know, the Gas Gas Aspar team is in a vaguely similar climbs um, in terms of branding and, and uh, association with Red Bull KTM Ayo. Uh, you know, it's it's not beyond the realms of possibility to imagine Jake Dixon working his way up through the Gas Gas structure and being in MotoGP in a couple of years. Um, it would have been, you know, a, a massive, massive blunder. Uh, so it was, uh, I mean, also speaking with Augusto as well, because he had to go, the riders had to filter through the media center all weekend to get to the TV broadcaster set to do their TV duties. And, um, he was, uh, he was kind of shaking his head, couldn't believe really the, the on-track behavior, considering the wider connotations of what would have happened if something had gone wrong. Yeah, I think Augusto was uh, a bit nonplussed, understandably so, because uh, it was a high-pressure situation. And when that battle was ongoing, it looked like Augusto was going to lose massive amounts of points. It was only when Agura crashed later on that uh, he was handed a reprieve of sorts. Um, but, you know, I think um, Augusto thought he had better pace than Jake, and he was therefore trying to pull them towards the guys in the podium places at that point. But Dixon thought differently. He thought he had the pace, and he thought that he had the better late rate late race speed uh, than Augusto and as Jake said afterwards we're not playing cards we're riding motorcycles in world championship and um, you know he said at no point did we make contact I mean the rules were tough but they were uh, clean I would say yeah I mean like because I put this on Twitter as well just to judge people's reactions and everyone said no 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 it's perfectly fair it's perfectly clean uh, you know it's uh, everyone has every right to do that and then I said well it was exactly like Rossi and, and Marquez like, no 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 this was very different it was completely different it wasn't like it at all you know Marquez was obviously trying to hold up Rossi and to me though I couldn't see the difference it was exactly the same situation where two riders I mean the only thing that was different is that uh, you know Jake Dixon wasn't in the press conference uh, or Augusto or Fernando wasn't in the press conference with Jake Dixon uh, <laughs> telling him uh, exactly how he had uh, tried to ruin his race ba uh, back in Phillip Island. So that, that it's literally the only the only difference. You know, yeah. they. So at which point did uh, Jake stand Augusto up and then you know flick his left knee? Well, that was yeah. Uh, I mean, like kick Augusto down. This is this is also true. I mean, that's the, 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 that's the other difference. The other difference is this is exactly how it should have played out. You know, it should have been just a clean or you know a, a hard. And entertaining battle and uh, we all get on with our lives uh, instead of turning into a drama-rama um, uh, cry fest. David Emmett bringing uh, everything back to Sepang 2015 since. <laughs> there Sepang is only 2015. one motorbike. There is only one motorbike race. Goodness gracious. Well, I mean, we'll come back to Moto2 later because, uh, I, you know, we're talking about, you picked that as your moment of the weekend, Dave. But, um, you know, I think there was probably a much larger occurrence that happened quite late into the race, um, you know, that we'll, we'll talk about a bit later on. Uh, for me, the moment of the Grand Prix was uh, Pekka Benaya's start. I mean, he was ninth on the grid, right at the end of the third row, uh, and the way he just got away, put himself into contention, um, was magnificent. I thought it was the bedrock, really, of his Grand Prix victory, the seventh of the season. As we said, Neil, uh, on the on the Paddock Pass podcast note show, and people seen in many different places, um, seven wins means he's the most successful rider for Ducati since Casey Stoner in a single season. Um, you know, Peko's performance on Saturday had a lot of us wondering whether he was coping with the pressure of being championship leader to the tune of 14 points, um, whether he could actually seal the deal with um, a lot of attention around him. Not only a couple of camera crews who are making a documentary about his season, but also extra family, extra friends, you know, the whole MotoGP glare and spotlight, actually. Um, you know, his qualification on Saturday was the fourth worst of the year. And it was actually the fourth time since Jerez that he's been off the front row. 
So it was um, a major mis miscue, but, uh, you know, the way he managed to focus and get the job done, I think, you know, it sort of, it was testament to his focus for the race. I mean, you only have to look at what happened to Marco Bezzecchi as well and the way that he was kind of squeezed into the first corner and lost a lot of time and positions, that the same thing could have happened to Bagnaia if he had fluffed the start and was steeper in the pack. So that was, uh, that was really where he got it done, I think. Uh, the interesting thing about Sepang is, is it's a very long run into turn one from the start line. Uh, and I mean, normally pole position is out on the outside so that you have, you know, the ideal line into the first corner. But with such a long run, um, actually being on the inside can be more of an advantage also because there's usually a fair amount of rubber there because of the way that the, uh, the, the, the riders come out of the final corner and, and uh, ride up the right hand side of the track before sweeping left and then back into the corner again. Um, and what happens for both Banyaya and Quattararo is everyone sort of like switched over to the left, but and that opened up some space in front of them and allowed them to make up a, a, you know a lot of uh, a lot of ground at the start. And um, uh, yeah, fair play. I mean, the the, the Ducati garage looked like an absolute disaster on Saturday. The, the the tension there, and it looked to be perfectly frank as if Ducati were messing it up just because of the amount of pressure they were placing on. Everyone, the only person who looked at all calm was Pekka Banyaya, uh, and Christian Gabarini, who's also just really, really calm at that, very, very good at that. But, um, everyone else looked as, as if they were about to explode. So, well, for, they put a but, heart rate monitor on Tardotsi, David. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. It was, it would, at a certain point, it just went into, uh, uh into exponential notation because it was, uh, that was the only way to actually keep up with it. Um, it was, it was just, yeah, I mean, there was so much pressure there. And the way that uh, Banyaya handled it, I think, is perhaps the most impressive thing about his season so far. Um, let's get on to one of the first talking points uh, on this podcast show this week. Uh, Neil, you wanted to tackle the duel that we saw between Paco Bagnaia and, you know, Bastianini. Uh, the third time this year that the future teammates, uh, you know, tangled. Uh, Mizano being probably the most notable. Aragon as well. We saw a close battle. But, uh, you know, we, we were left on Sunday asking questions about Bastianini really because it didn't look like um, a team or a brand kind of effort there to get the job done did it um, I mean there was fantastic pressure again as we spoke about on the Patreon note show on Sunday evening uh, the likes of Luca Marini didn't believe there was anything wrong with um, Bastianini's conduct uh, he felt actually that the proximity of the Italian to his countrymen was actually doing Bagnaia a favour and keeping him focused if he had been further down the track with a five second margin then you know maybe he could have misfired or you know slipped had a moment of a lack of concentration and dropped it so you know that was one kind of view which i think we didn't really see purely because you know bastinini was so close and attacking so often um but the question is should he have done so uh, i mean probably not i mean i think this is this is one of the most interesting things coming away from malaysia um it was that battle at the front and you know whether Bastianini should have been doing that. Um, I think his defense was that at the time of the race, um, it was still mathematically possible for him to uh, to win the world championship. And he was, what, plus 40 points, I think, going into the race uh, behind Banyaya. Um, so technically that is true. However, knowing that Banyaya was second, he was pretty much having to bank on him having a crash um, to really have any sort of chance of getting back into it, so um, I think it was it was certainly a very interesting tactic. 
Um, I wasn't quite sure what Bastianini was doing because I thought it was so obvious that he was, for all intents and purposes, out of it by that stage because it was clear Banyaya was looking good. Um, and yeah, with Ducati clearly um, wanting to get this wrapped up as soon as possible. I thought it was actually quite funny and, and just quite ridiculous that he was pressuring Banyaya to the extent that he did. Um, obviously, there's a very clear explanation for why he did it, and that's because he's trying to uh, show Peko exactly what he's in for next year in 2023, that he's going to be no pushover. And even in times when possibly <clears throat> the brand should outweigh, um, or the good of the brand should outweigh the good of the rider, Bastianini is still going to put the good of the rider maybe ahead of the good of the brand, which is absolutely fantastic for us and what we want to see. And I'm not being critical of Bastianini here. I'm, I'm really glad that he did what he did because it kept what would have been maybe a dar race quite interesting, in fact, very interesting, right up until the checkered flag. Um, and I love it because he's showing the the kind of the traits of like the kind of toughest, uh, hardest, most uh, ruthless competitors by just sort of shrugging <laughs> shoulders at what Ducati bosses might want um, and, and not really paying any attention whatsoever to it. So it, it's it's superb for us. It's superb, I think, for the championship next year. It's going to be a wonderful battle. But I do have to think, that, you know, it was uh, it was so clear what the right thing was to do, yet he just uh, seemed oblivious to it. Um, so, you know, on one hand, I think it's it's kind of, he's opened himself up for criticism, but at the same time, I love the fact that he wasn't just riding around behind Pecco and saying, after you, sir, go ahead and take the win. Yeah, I mean, if you were wondering whether there were any team orders or factory orders uh, from Ducati, then I think it's fairly obvious, you know, Bastianini's behaviour made it perfectly obvious. Uh, afterwards, uh, both Tardotti and Ciabatti were saying, look, the only thing we've said is um, uh, don't do anything stupid, don't take risks. And you saw that again with um, the, the, the final pass where um, Bastianini at turn nine got close, nearly ran into the back, but ran wide because he wasn't on the right side. Anywhere else, you know, if it, if it hadn't been for the championship, then maybe Bastianini might have tried to stuff it up the inside and actually, you know, forced... Uh, Banyaya wide, but um, uh, but he didn't. But um, uh, no, I mean it's clear. There's absolutely no. There are no team orders other than don't knock anyone off. Because the other thing is, you saw the panic once uh, Bezeki started catching Quartararo and Bastianini was leaving it leading, and then it suddenly became mathematically possible for Banyaya to wrap it up. And then there was a lot of talk going backwards and forwards. Right, what are we going to do? Are we going to stick the board out and all the rest of it? Um, Bezeki solved that problem for them by backing off and losing, uh, you know, losing time. Um, I think it was, uh, I mean, I don't see anything wrong with it at all. Bastianini has every right to try and win that race. Uh, the most amusing thing for me afterwards was uh, Gunter Wiesinger of Speedweek reporting that uh, Carlo Panat had uh, uh, said <laughs> that if, um, if Ducati want any help, then they can pay all of uh, Bastianini's th the third place bonuses in the championship. So, um, uh, yeah, that's, it was, you know, much more about that than anything else because we're talking about a significant amount of money. I think, uh, uh, the, 
numbers are in the order of around half a million euros for uh, for finishing third in the championship, and nothing at all for finishing fourth in the championship. So it's uh, it, it's quite a big deal. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, completely agree. And as Neil said, it's about 2023. There was a big, big part of that in 2023. And I'm really looking forward to, to seeing that because uh, it's going to be much more interesting than watch um, uh, Jack Miller be a good teammate to Pekka Banyaya and support him in that way. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree with what you say. I mean, it definitely made it more of a spectacle. Um, I also love the way that Bastianini has this kind of like cheekiness to him. Um, you know, he was kind of grinning away about the situation, seemingly unaware of the gravitas of, of everything that had been going on. I think our, our colleague um, Manuel Pacino in the press conference asked him if he'd seen his pit board. And he kind of went, yes. He said, well, did you <laughs> want to pay any attention to your pit board? Uh, no. So I mean, is this this kind of like you know this disregard really for for what's going on? I think um, Gareth Harford as well, you know, one of the, the the regular photographers in MotoGP had a great image in Part Fermé with Bagnaia sort of feigning to you know stick a knife in the back of uh, Bastinini, um, you know, as if to say you know you're making my life unnecessarily hard, mate. Uh, but I also love the, the 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 drama, which you know, kudos to the Dorna TV production crew for keeping an eye on the the, the three stooges of um, you know, Ducati senior management, trying to work out, like Dave mentioned, what to do in the event that you know Bastianini was leading the race and Bezecchi, who had actually, like we had mentioned earlier, due to his um, his drama and the start, had chewed uh, the most effective period of his tyres uh, at the beginning of the race, so wasn't really ever going to threaten Fabio Quartararo as as the laps went on. But uh, yeah, it was it was it was good drama. But I still found myself a little disbelieving that Bastianini, who is only three weeks away at the time from entering that team and changing the shade of leathers from like a mauve to a dark red, would you know? I mean, there is as with everything in racing, guys. There's a precedent for this. 2006, Danny Pedrosa and Nicky Hayden. I mean, look, that was. Um, I mean, that was serious plates being thrown at the wall in the HRC hospitality. It's uh, that's as close as it comes to, you know, dropping a major clangor. Yeah, I mean, a few things I'd like to mention. I think um, Ducati, uh, Paolo Giovatti said after the race on Sunday that um, had Buzeki got Quattararo for third, um, obviously, if Banya won and Quattararo was third, then he would be champion. So if Bezeki took Quattararo for third, then they were going to tell Bastianini, look, back off. And they came to that agreement during the race. And I think we should probably say, you know, chapeau to Ducati, because it would have been so easy for them to tell Bastianini, just back off, please, because we want our rider to win. Um, and maybe he was told subtly to do so, but there was no kind of um, dashboard messaging. Um, I think um, he probably got a stern ticking off after the race. And, I, and Dave mentioned Gunther, Gunther Wiesinger's story on Speed Week afterwards with uh, Carlo Pernat. It was reported that Pernat and uh, Chibati were having a right old Roy after the race as well. Um, so I think, you know, that's obviously interesting, but it could have been quite easy for them to have really made it clear to Bastianini during the race, like, look, leave him alone, but they didn't. Um, so, you know, I think that's, uh, that's kind of, that's a good thing. Um, they let him race it out. And, um, yeah, as you said, Ad, I love, I love his kind of impishness, his cheekiness. Um, and, you know, as I said before, it's the kind of thing that you would see Mark Marquez, that you would see Valentino Rossi do a kind of ruthlessness, uh, putting themselves beyond, any other kind of hope 
and that's what you need to do to succeed at the very top. I mean, it's uh, I find it like very I find it like a quite a promising, um, although not uh, completely savvy in terms of uh, the corporate image or being a team player. I thought it was uh, very encouraging for Bastian and his hopes to be a champion one day in MotoGP. Yeah, I I don't really like the comparison to 2006 because I think it is different. You know, like uh, uh, Pedrosa was a rookie. Pedrosa was Nicky Hayden's teammate. Um, it was just a stupid. It was a stupid pass on, on Pedrosa's. You know, it was the, exactly the kind of rookie mistake you you would expect from a, from a rider in his first year. Um, and you know, the championship situation was very different. I think uh, what was it, eight points or something that Valentino Rossi led going into Valencia, uh, going into Valencia after that. Um, you know, the the, the already. Um, Marquez or, uh, Banyaya has, you know, he has a 14 point, uh, point lead. So it's a much more comfortable situation. And, and anyway, the difference between first and second, uh, wouldn't have made all that much difference. You know, now it's 22 points. Otherwise it would have been, uh, what is it? 18 or 17 points. Um, uh, sorry, no, 23 or 18. That's still, I mean, you really, Banyaya really does have to mess up horrifically to actually throw the championship away. Because the other thing is, you know, Fabio Quattararo has to win in uh, uh, at, um, at Valencia, and that's just not going to happen. Considering we had three Ducatis on the grid last year, or on the front row of the grid last year, and three uh, three Ducatis on the podium. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we could perhaps talk a little bit about Valencia towards the end of the show, Dave, but I mean, Quartararo has only finished on the podium once um, at Valencia. Uh, you know, like you say, he has to get a job done. Uh, Bagnaia only has to finish 14th because he has a superior number of victories. But just to go back to Bagnaia for a moment, because we were talking about the pressure that he's been under. And I mean, I looked it up and unless I've made a mistake, then of his seven victories this year, six of those have been achieved with a winning margin of less than half a second. Which, you know, is a, is a phenomenal amount, really, because that, you know, we, we've been speculating or ruminating rather that MotoGP has been slightly stayed this year. But there, there are some seriously close race finishes. Um, and Bagnaia has had to really, you know, focus and fend off people like Fabio Quartararo, like Marco Bezzecchi, like Bastianini um, to, to get the job done. So it was, a, it was another splendid performance i thought but you know if we can also just uh hypothesize for a moment if if bastini had been winning and he had to move over to let bagnaia win and, and Ducati win the world championship i wonder how he would have done it i mean if he had slowed up right on the last corner and made it so blatantly obvious that he was handing bagnaia and Ducati the championship i wonder how that would have been for relations going into 2023 because you know that's already a, a psychological one one up isn't it yeah, but um, it was interesting because in this in this situation, Bastianini afterwards said that basically he had uh, he had sort of destroyed his rear tire and he was losing a lot of time on corner exit, wasn't able to get the drive, and he was having to make up time on Pekka Bagnaia on the bricks. And you know we have come to expect Bastianini to manage his tires pretty much better than anyone else in MotoGP in the second half of the season. In fact, all season he's been he's generally been very very good at it, one of the best at it. Um, arriving late in the race, yet here he seemed to have just um, yeah uh, done his rear tiring a bit uh, a bit earlier than he felt. Um, and 
you know, I think we have to say chapeau to, to Banyaya because he um, was able to defend um, and able to defend, I wouldn't say comfortably, but, um, you know, I wouldn't say it got as close as it did back at Mizano, for instance, when uh, Bastianini was less than a tenth of a second away. So, um, yeah, yeah, for once it seemed that uh, Peko had the edge on him um, late race um, this year because that, you know, like we saw in Aragon or in Mizano, you know, it was clear in those races that Bastianini was definitely the faster guy at the end, but here I don't think that was the case. Now, if you use the word chapeau again, I'm going to start calling you Lin. Um, <laughs> well, if this podcast is uh, Peko Bagnaya, then stay as Anaya Bastianini and uh, follow us tightly because we're just going to go into an ad break, but we'll be right back. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen-compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Renthal Street, Chain, and Sprockets are perfectly matched for maximum power transfer and efficiency. From racetrack to daily rider, with over 800 fitments, Renthal Street has a final drive solution for almost any bike. Use Renthal.com to find the correct fitment. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast, second half. Uh, my talking point, guys, I just think there's been some debate. I mean, I've even written about it in, in sort of the magazine segment this week uh, about the strength of this championship. I mean, we saw Joanne Mir come under some criticism in 2020 for only winning one Grand Prix on the way to his title. Uh, Fabio Quasarao deservingly winning the world title last year. But then this championship, you know, we, we've actually asked, does anybody want to win it? We haven't really seen any displays of mastery. Uh, you know, we've had uh, Fabio Quattararo largely owning the first part of the season and then Paco Pagnai just going on a complete tear. And in fact, if we look back at the story of the year, then, you know, the, the Grand Prix of Germany at Saxonring was probably the turning point. I mean, that was the last time that Quattararo won, uh, Bagnaia DNF'd. But from that moment on, it's been a complete swap around in terms of the protagonists and what they've done. Um, and I just think it's been a fantastic championship, actually. I think it's been largely, it's been very close. It's been unpredictable um we've had seven different winners um podium finishes from ev multiple podium finishes from every brand uh i think uh, only yamaha the, the only manufacturer that haven't had more than one rider that's been on the box and we're going into a final round decider so i don't think it's been really devalued at all okay we can say that mark marquez the the fastest rider in the world again hasn't been at his full potential you know and it's been now the third season like that but uh, I, I, I think it's been a great story, a decent, a decent narrative. What's your opinion? Uh, I'm sort of torn. It's, it, it's difficult. Yes, I mean, yes, we're going to a final uh, race decider, but I mean, it's pretty much decided. The, the, the gap is too big. Um, uh, and it's very much been a, a season of two halves because Fabio Quartararo was just sort of like walking away with it in the first half. And as you say, Ad, uh, the second half, um, uh, basically that crash by Pekka Banyaya in Saxonring turned to be, turned out to be completely crucial because he, it forced him to sit down and analyze the mistakes that he was making. Um, and it, 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 since then, he's only made that same mistake once, which was in Mategi when he was 
thinking about passing uh, Fabio Quartararo, but then already once he passed Quartararo, he was also thinking about, you know, I think it was Marquez who was the next one in front of him. So he was already thinking about, well, what if I get past Fabio, where do I pass Mark? Um, and that, that, to me, um, you do one thing at a time. Um, and Fabio, ha- or sorry, Paco has been really, really good at concentrating on one thing at a time, uh, on the job in hand, concentrating on, you know, one session at a time, one race at a time, um, and in the race, concentrating on one problem at a time and that has allowed him to be just phenomenal in the second half of the championship you know I mean he has uh, if you he's crashed out of Mategi and threw and threw a lot of points away there um, but of the eight races he's finished with a maximum of 200 points he scored 177 points which is just insane. I mean, it, it's it's getting close to Mark 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 Marquez levels of uh, of domination. Um, so it's it's been it's been very odd. And again, this is something that I've sort of been emailing with uh, uh, Dennis Noyes about: is whether is this a good championship? Because also the the, the points total is really low for uh, for championship. Normally, championships are won with well over 300 points. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're going to get to 200 uh, or to 20 races and still be well under the 300-point total. So uh, there hasn't been someone, despite sort of what Pecco has done in the second half of the championship, it, it hasn't really been someone who, who's who's dominated. It's been very up and down. Also, you know, Alicia Spargo was fantastic in the first half of the year and has just sort of gone to pieces since Aragon. Basically, um, there's it, it's been it's been quite odd. I mean, it's been certainly interesting. Um, it, it, is interesting the same as good? I really don't know. I I, I genuinely do not know. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know when the last time a world champion had five DNFs in one season. I mean, I know we're getting up to 20 races. Never in the Premier Never. Never. Okay. And also coming back from a 91-point deficit, that's a first. So, I mean, Bagnaya, you could say, right, he's at the the head of an armada with, um, you know, the... Or the Ducatis. I mean, I know I'm swapping nationalities. I don't remember Italy ever having an armada, but uh, you know, and and but and of course, Quattararo. And as we've said before on the podcast, has been making this knife gesture right up against his throat all year when he's described how he's pushed the M1 to the most of its capabilities. Um, you know, but I think his result in the last his results in the last four races. Um, DNF um, outside the points for another one another DNF and then finally getting back on the podium for the first time since goodness when was the last Red Bull ring Austria so it's Austria yeah so it's been it's been quite a trek um, in the second half and, and Neil I mean you've you've also said that you know there were some suspicions that Fabio was having a bit of a mental block like he was in in 2020 and that hasn't been the case um, you know I think as we saw in Sepang, the Frenchman deserves eternal credit for the way that he really has ridden like a beast this year. Um, but I just wanted to ask you, Neil, because you you sort of like um, just in our discussions, you were having difficulty getting any kind of love or uh, favoritism for the Bagnaya champion bandwagon. Um, has that shifted a little bit for you in the last couple of weeks? Yeah, it has had. Um, I think, understandably, um, a lot of people I've seen, you know, just people I've spoken to, also some opinions I've seen online from both journalists and fans pointing to the Ducati dominance. And you can't deny the fact that the Ducati is by some distance the best bike on the grid. Um, and obviously 
um, you know, Pekka is in Ducati's factory team and therefore he should be, he should be winning this championship. He should be out of sight by now, frankly. Um, but I still think in the circumstances, as Dave mentioned, uh, his recovery from the Saxon ring has been remarkable. I think what, eight podiums in the last nine, um, five wins in that time. And in each of the last three weekends, since that mess up that he made in, in Mategi, you know, there's genuinely been like three rounds where Banyai has been super impressive and rounds where there were occasions when you thought, okay, this might be his undoing. This might lead to another mistake. You know, like for example, in Thailand, it was wet and just eight days previously in Japan, he was shocking in the wet, could not get any film whatsoever, yet he managed to hold off Mark Marquez at the end of that race. Um, in Australia, start device didn't work yet at a track that maybe wasn't one of Ducati's best. In previous years, he led a lot of laps and came within a lap of winning the race. And then again, you know, here he had obviously a few shakes and a few nerves on Saturday, um, yet had that thrilling start and held off Bastionier at the end. So I think in the last three rounds, you have to give him a lot of credit. He has been riding like a champion and winning. Um, and, uh, you know, for me, that's a bit of a relief because on Saturday, I think all of us were maybe um, just bemoaning the fact that no one wanted to win the championship. All three of the candidates at that time, Banyaya, Quartararo, Espargaro, weren't looking like contenders. They were looking like nervous rookies, really, in this kind of situation. Um, however, I think both Banyaya and Quartararo responded on Sunday with kind of championship-esque performances, both responded with rides that made you realize that they are the top two guys in the world this year and um you know they had a lot of things going against them but they still managed to make it work um so you know you have to say fair play for that not not chapeau right fair um, play. <laughs> but you know if you take an overall view of the championship i mean the the you know, the Bagnaia and Quattararo duel is something we could have, we saw a little bit towards the end of last year, didn't we? We thought, right, okay, those are the top two guys from that campaign. It's only natural if they're going to be the top two going into another year. Um, you know, they've got a little bit more development, not so much in Yamaha's case, but certainly with Ducati and with Bagnaia, a bit more experience, a bit more learning. But, um, you know, we've also had some fans, uh, like fascinating narratives this year, of course, such as, you know, Aprilia's resurgence and then also dropping off so ever so slightly as we got to the flyaways, uh, the Suzuki story um you know honda's woes i mean when was the last time we ever saw a a press conference with the technical coordinators from the teams and then honda was in the back row and the last to talk um you know as befitting their status in the manufacturer's standing so it's it's, it's been quite a turn up I, I don't think you know you can really point at the championship and say it's been a disappointing year at all i think it's been um you know pretty riveting so uh that that's my two pennies worth yeah, I, uh, yeah. I mean, like uh, as I said, it's been really interesting. Whether that's, I mean, the way that the championship has played out has also made it really difficult to actually sort of you know figure out whether it's any good or not, if you like. But um, uh, yeah, just the, the way it's been, the way it's been that has, it has played out. And uh, uh, again, I come back to it. I think Saxon Ring was absolutely pivotal. It was pivotal in because. Pekka Benyar started off the season looking a lot like um, the end of last year. Uh, and uh, he completely turned it around. He was the end of last year. He was really, really fast, but prone to mistakes. And after uh, after uh, the Saxon ring, he just stopped making mistakes. And that's that's just really impressive. I think a way, maybe the best way of gauging um, how strong a rider has been over a year and comparing it to kind of former 
um, glories is just by looking at like the average points hole from the champion each year. And in the Michelin era, um, if you look at it, it, I think it's quite interesting. You know, you've got you know the championships that Mark won from 16 through to 19. His average was 16.5, 16.5, 17.8, and then 22. Uh, average points per race in 2019 which was you know his best ever season one of the most dominant seasons we've ever seen so that's a bit of an outlier but then Mir was 12 points on average when he uh, won the championship in 2020 Fabio was 15.4 last year so not that far off what Marquez was kind of achieving in a few of his championships this year it's been 13.5 so pretty low I would say in in kind of historical terms um, so yes in that sense the, le- the level is quite low but when you sort of take into account the start of Banyai's year and then consider the point that he was 91 points behind Quavio at a certain point and has managed to reverse that to 23 points ahead, um, then I think, you know, his uh, his recovery has been, has been really strong. I mean, it's the best recovery ever. I think the previous biggest fight back uh, points-wise in the championship was something like, um, it was, uh, I think, like 50 points or something. Um, 92 was it with uh, Wayne Rainey and uh, Mick Doohan. Um so you know Banyai's 91 points is massively uh, you know the biggest comeback in terms of points uh, in Premier Class history over a season and that you know I think needs to be credited as well like you said the best bike is on the, the best bike on the grid is the Ducati Neil I mean it's um, down to a number of factors uh, of course Gigi Dalinga but also it shows the real weight of numbers um, the usefulness of data and getting everything crunched and moving on Dave I know you wanted to talk a bit about the Desmos Adichie in particular but a rapid question for you both is this championship more about Bagnaia winning it or from Quattararo dropping it? Uh, Bagnaia winning it I would say I think I think Fabio sort of yeah, if he sort of uh, crashed out at Sepang and then crashed out at Valencia, maybe you would say he kind of blew it. But um, I think the fact that the odds have been stacked against them all season long um, and that he still managed to take it to the final race of the year um, after a bit of a wobble. Um, yeah, I would say, it, you know, Yamaha were never really in a position to say this is ours to lose. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, to me... Um I, it's really complicated. I think it is, it is specifically about Banyaya winning this. Yes, the Ducati is the best bike on the grid, but also, but like we, we keep saying, the, the Banyaya's performance in the second half of the season uh, has just been absolutely, you know, phenomenal. There's just no other word for it. You know, like, uh, okay, he's, uh, what was it, 4, 13.5 uh, uh, on average uh, points. But, you know, the second half of the season, he's got to be, you know, well over 20. I haven't done, done the maths, but, you know, it's just a, it's just a ridiculous amount of, of points that he scored. Um, in a way... Uh, and this sort of brings me on to my point. Um, uh, the, the, the thing that I wanted to talk about is that, uh, it's almost a surprise that Ducati haven't, haven't wrapped this up earlier. Ducati should have done it, uh, should have sorted it out uh, earlier, but they spent so much of the first part of the season testing and messing around, um, that they, that they threw away a lot of points. I mean, we remember, uh, Pekka Banyaya, I think, uh, all the way up to FP3 on Saturday complaining about, um, the amount of testing of new material he was still having to do. And he didn't have a base setup and he didn't have anywhere to, you know, a, a good starting point. Um, uh, throwing the bike away, uh, uh, taking out, I think Jorge 
Sebastian Martin um, uh, in the race just because, you know, lost the front because they didn't have uh, the, a, a really stable base up. Um, and it took them really until they got back to Europe. So the first five races, you know, it wasn't until they turned up at Portimao that Ducati actually had a, a, a starting point, a real, a real base setup. And that was the point at which you really start to see Bagnaia build. And you sort of think, I mean, Ducati brought a lot of, um, a lot of changes. You know, they had a new chassis. They had a new engine, then abandoned it and bought a slightly up uh, upgraded version of last year's engine. Um, uh, they had the front ride height device. The, 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 it's clear they've changed the rear ride height device as well. Uh, they had a lot of aerodynamics that, that they've been playing around with. And they just had so much to test. Um, Gigi Delinia, um, Ducati believe in the bike, it, a, a lot like Honda always did. You know, it was the bike that won the championship. Um, Ducati believe in the bike as well. Um, and, uh, they put a lot of effort into the, into developing the bike, but that counted against them at the, uh, at the start of the season, I think. And I think they threw away the first sort of five, six, seven races, maybe, um, just because they'd lost it to not having a decent base setup. And, and if they did, uh, sorted themselves out earlier in the year then i think uh, the the whole season would have been easier and i don't think we'd be talking about you know taking the championship down to the uh tenth of the last race because i think um uh, i think Daniel would have wrapped it up much much earlier if we i'm not sure if it's media center chat or it's actually been confirmed somewhere but would there will actually only be four factory desmos adichis on the grid next year right yep it's okay confirmed. so that's yeah, so that's Bagnaia and Bastinini, and then the other two have they been the Pramax? Yeah, yeah, the Pramax. Zarco yeah, and right, okay. And and Zarco, I mean, the, 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 this is the other thing. The genius, uh, you don't really need to. I mean, Ducati don't really need to do all of this extra um, uh, testing during the winter because they've got Joan Zarco. You know that that second Ducati has always, or that that, that uh, or that Pramac Ducati has always been the test mule. It was Jack Miller when he was there. It was Danilo Petrucci who was there. You know, Petrucci was given uh, was given setups and told go out on uh, you know test this. We want to know how what, how the bike behaves. And he knew that you know he wasn't going to be able to be be competitive because he had something else to do. He had he had a job to do for the factory. Um, it's an incredible, I mean, it, it's such a smart thing to do as well. It's such a smart way to approach the race um, that it's just, it, it's odd that other factories don't, uh, don't do this as well. And you would hope that KTM might use Paul Aspargo in a very similar, in a similar sort of role next year on the gas gas. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's always when with testing so incredibly limited it's really difficult to get the bike perfect uh, you know dead right so you have to uh, find a compromise between testing enough and uh, not finding yourself getting lost and ending up starting the season without really without a base setup without really you know a starting point for to, to work from Dave, um, you know, Ducati tested a new chassis in Misano um, for, the, for that one-day test there. Is there the danger that, you know, wrapping the Triple Crown, you know, they kind of take their foot off the gas a little bit? You know, they say, right, we've got a bike that in the last two generations is still extremely competitive right at the front of the grid. Uh, you know, okay, they're going to have four 2023 spec next year, but the 22 is obviously a fantastic motorcycle. I know if you stand still, then you run the risk of moving against the factories, other factories that are making progress. 
But I just wonder if Ducati will have the resources once they've achieved their objective of being number one in the world across every particular category, construct a rider and team. You know, perhaps they think, you know, right, okay, um, you know, we've got the bikes on the grid. Let's just let's crack on again. Uh, th- I mean, they are running into the the danger for them now is that the bike is too good. You know, like uh, w- with a bike this good, the risk of changing something and make it worse, um, it, it gets easier to make things worse than it does to make things better. Um, so it can be it can be a real risk. And Luca Marini has been saying, I think after the. Uh, I don't remember if it's the Bizarre, uh, the Misano or the Barcelona test. And we asked Luca Marini, so what do you think, you know, what's the one weakness that Ducati needs to work on? And Marini was saying, nothing is fine. You know, like it's perfect. Don't just don't touch it. Leave it alone. Um, it is a very good bike. The new chassis is supposed to help the bike turn more. Um, the bike already turns very, very well. Uh, also in combination with Bagnaia, especially with Bagnaia and Bastianini's riding style and the new rear Michelin, uh, they've really figured that whole thing out really quite well. Um, the, the, the new chassis is a, another improvement. Uh, it's going to be lots and lots of small improvements. Um, the thing is for the other factories, you know, they are a long way behind and so they can make much bigger steps. You know, look at, uh, look at Yamaha. Uh, next year's Yamaha is going to be much better because they're still basically riding what is, you know, a 2020 bike, uh, and they've got a much faster engine. And the, and Honda are, uh, they changed their bike completely and have got, got completely lost. And so they just need to go back and start working methodically, which is why, uh, Marcus has been doing so much testing. So yeah, it's a, it's a risk that Ducati, um, could, you know, lose their way. But I, I, think it, it won't really matter because they can always go back to the 20 you know to the 22 uh setup you know they can if, if worst comes to the worst comes to the worst they can you know just like throw all their 22 bits or uh, the or the 23 bits away stick the engine in a 22 chassis um and and away you go yeah i think um you know you were saying there dave about luca marini he was saying again at the weekend that ducati just needs to try and not reinvent the wheel over the winter and uh make small tiny improvements because the package is already so so good um and whether their early season approach or their their approach to, to testing a new bike and, and and testing a lot during the first runs of the season whether it's been justified i mean i guess the end always justifies the means um you look now and um i think all five gp22s on the grid um have riders that are capable of scoring podiums um in in many races um you just had to look at the philip island race to see what five of the five ducatis inside the top seven it would have been six inside the top uh it would have been six probably in that league group as well if jack miller hadn't crashed um perhaps knowing the issues that yamaha were in the fact that yamaha had stood still perhaps it was an educated risk on their part um through the preseason to continue developing and pushing these new kind of types of technology through in the first part of the year but in any kind of normal year um you know banyaya being 91 points back by the time of the german grand prix you know that would have been good night i think they've got very very lucky that um their main opponent fabio quattararo the best rider you know other that is not on a Ducati, um, has been on essentially a, a bike that is very similar to what he was running a few years ago. Um, so yeah, they got very, very lucky. It was a, it was a massive risk what they were doing. Um, it's probably going to pay off. It's more than likely going to pay off. But um, yeah, they they got lucky. 
As you said, now I mean, Ducati have had weight in numbers, uh, but then it it is also possible to develop a, a Grand Prix winning motorcycle when there's just two of them. I mean, we, as we saw of Alex Rins's fantastic performance in Australia, the GSX RR is still incredibly competitive. Um, Aprilia made great progress this season, even though there was only two of those machines. And then if you look at KTM, there's double the amount. There's four of them, but having two rookies on there, you know, uh, again was probably i guess if you're going to be critical different mindsets certainly from the second half of the season then it hasn't really accelerated anything in the you know in the rc16 to make it a more um, predictable motorcycle no matter what the conditions in terms of being competitive so it, it can be a bit of a mixed bag um and i don't think you know the, the biggest question i think will be over yamaha next year they're just going to have two bikes on the grid you know, how's that going to affect things for development? And Fabio Quattararo is going to have a lot of questions. Franco Morbidelli is going to have even more questions. Um, I mean, probably the hardest season of his career. And he was another one in Sepang who was making some, um, you know, some pretty heavy moves, I think, trying to show how aggressive you actually have to be on the M1. And Cal Crutchlow has been a bit of a revelation, certainly for us, when he's come back into the racing mold by describing what the Yamaha actually is, is like to ride, you know, from being one of the most user-friendly um versatile or you know generally usable motorcycles in recent years it's now one of the toughest actually to exact the final drops of performance that these guys need to get to the front but um, in terms of you know getting the last bit of uh whatever usable product you have out of whatever's underneath you um that's a very crap way to head into the next section of the podcast so i'm just going to say we'll talk about our winners from the grand prix of malaysia neil you're first who who was your particular victor my particular victor ad was um i mean obvious but um yeah pekka banyaya just for what we've mentioned so far in the show um it looked perilous on saturday two crashes and two crunch moments at the end of fp3 at the end of q2 um one of his worst qualifying performances of the year but um started brilliantly held off bastion in his challenge um showed that he could deliver when the chips are done and um yeah he's now just uh you know essentially a cruise around valencia away from bringing home his first MotoGP championship just to kind of rake over some of the old ground as well my winner was fabio quattararo um and uh, you know the way that he could um perform like that take his first podium for a number of grand prix after a disappointing run of thorn and be able to flick the bird to show off his broken left finger in part ferme um just kind of topped it all <laughs> off really <laughs> yeah exactly loris baz got pined for that in uh, in world superbike so it doesn't really seem uh, uh seem fair yeah i mean like honestly the, the rides by those two were exceptional genuinely some of the best rides i think we've seen both year from both of those two they were just uh, outstanding especially from where they were uh, on the grid um for me my winner has to be Gigi Delinia because he was hired to do this he was hired to come to Ducati and win the Moriders Championship after uh, the failed experiment with um Valentino Rossi and uh, he's done it he's he's uh, he's put together a program which is built 
clearly the best bike on the grid. It, it, you know, it took him a long while. It, he, he got very close with Andrea Dovizioso, um, but Dovizioso found himself up against, you know, Mark Marquez, which was uh, just a, a, a bridge too far. Um, I think Pena has been a little bit lucky with Marquez being out, but, you know, Marquez is out because Marquez made a mistake. Uh, you know, he, he crashed and he, he suffered the consequences of, of all that ever since. So, um, yeah, this is this is Banyaya's championship, but it's also very much um, a Gigi Delinia's championship, and it is the crowning. It was the one thing he missed because he's won one, two, five, and two fifty championships with uh, uh, with Aprilia. And now he's finally got a Premier Class championship as well. Almost well, everyone. Almost. Yeah. Oh no, he's look. He's going to look. It's. I mean, I don't like to rain on anybody's parade, and obviously Fabio Quartararo won't believe me. But the, I mean, the, the the string of coincidences needed to, or the string of events needed for Fabio Quartararo to actually win the win the championship at Valencia are just too bizarre. I mean, it would literally need um, uh, Pekka Banyaya to decide. You know what? I'm. 20 races is too many. I think I'm just going to stay at home. It's much too um, it's much too nice, um, uh, much too comfortable. Can't be bothered. There's no point. We'll, we'll, so, talk, about, we'll talk about this probably next week when we're previewing the, the final race of the year, Dave. But all it would take would be for Pekka Banyai to do something that he's done in four races this year, which is crash on it, which is... Uh, uh, no, 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 no. But it would not only... I mean... Th- th- it's not even what Pecco Benyaya has to do, which which troubles me. It's Fabio Quartararo winning in Valencia. That, to me, is the most improbable thing. It's a bit like, it, it, again, sorry, it could bring up to 2015 again. Once we got to Valencia, uh, it was obvious that, uh, that uh, Valentino Rossi was not going to win the championship because the last race was at Valencia. If the last race had been at Phillip Island or uh, or Mugello or somewhere else, then he would have stood a chance. If it was Phillip exactly- Island, he would have finished fourth. <laughs> well, yeah, well, yes, yeah, this is also true. All right, uh, uh, bad, um, uh, bad, uh, bad analogy. But I mean, th- this is the same. If the last race was at uh, was at Barcelona, uh, then you'd have to say Fabio Quartararo stands a real chance of winning the championship. But if the last race isn't at Barcelona, the bar- last race is at Valencia, and uh, there's going to be like six Ducatis ahead of him. I should have given Rossi a Honda and a ten second penalty nil, and you know maybe he would have surged through <laughs> and won it from that distance. Well, as ever, with any um, Valentino Rossi in, in in Malaysia, there's a Mark Marquez. Um, where there's a Jake Dixon, there's an Augusto Fernandez. And where there are winners, there are losers. Um, me first. My loser from the Grand Prix last weekend is Jorge Martin. Um, he was in a fantastic position to escape and win that Grand Prix. Um, a spectacular crash. And even some pretty scary photos, actually, of the uh, Desmos... Desmos... Right, the Desmo Sedici flying through the gravel and almost hitting one of the marshals. That was um, pretty scary stuff. But, uh, I mean, Martin's conduct, Neil, over the last couple of weeks has been a bit weird, hasn't he? He's made a few sort of narky kind of comments in the media that, you know, he feels slightly harshly done by in terms of being passed over for the factory seat. Um, there's, there's a bit of a chip on the shoulder, I, I would um, speculate there. Yes, I don't think you would be speculating. I think you would be telling the absolute truth um, of the situation. I'd, uh, yeah, he's pretty much made it uh, as blatantly obvious as uh, as anyone could uh, hope to imagine in trying to read the situation. Um, I liked his comment on Saturday whether he would um, be uh, sort of worrying about the championship 
connotations with Banyaya and could, whether he could win on sun, Sunday or not. And he just said, you know, <laughs> that's that's their problem. Uh, I'm not thinking about this. I'm just going to go out and try and win. So, yeah, uh, Martin is, uh, is currently just riding for Jorge Martin at the moment. And, you know, uh, he's totally entitled to do that because he feels he's been unfairly passed over. Dave, uh, who was your loser from Sepang? Uh, well, my loser from Sepang is Alessio Spargo because the, this was the point at which... Um, the championship was gone and he just had a miserable weekend. He's just had a miserable time all along. I think we're at the point where um, winning a championship is hard. Um, it's really hard. And it takes a lot from a factory as well. You have to put together so many different things. And this, I think, is where Aprilia have fallen down. They, they, they were not prepared, not really thinking about um, you know, where they were going wrong. Um, they were not really thinking, they were not really expecting to be in this situation. I think they're going to learn a lot of lessons from it, you know, in terms of, um, uh, bike development, having everything in place to be able to be competitive right up to the last race. Because in previous years, basically, there's been a point at which they've known that there's no point and they can start to focus on next year. Uh, and so the, 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 the whole of uh, everything has been built, built up around that. And I think also the fact that, you know, this is the first year that Aprilia are running their own team. Grassini have split off and uh, their own team. They lost a, a, a certain amount of expertise there as well. So I, uh, it, to me, that I think is what cost Alesh the championship. I think Alesh has been, he's been fairly invisible really these past, well, for most of the flyaways. Yeah, the flyaways have been the, the crucial stage for Aprilia, haven't they, Dave? I mean, it's, uh, I, you know, Spargo and his media debrief was, was frustrated. Uh, you could see it was written all over his face. Um, the way he was speaking, there was agitation. Uh, you know, I think for so long in 2022, he said that they're, they're living the dream in Aprilia. Um, they used to party when they had a sixth position. Now they're podium regulars, they're championship contenders. And I think, it, you know, it's just been a little bit of a bitter pill over the last fortnight to accept that, you know, it has is not going to quite it's not going to finish quite as strongly as it started so um but anyway without any further ado uh neil like a mosala cross straight over to the head of uh, darwin nunez i'm going to set you up for your loser <laughs> who are these people i don't remember oh. them uh, riding. Are, are these are these my three riders okay, i don't talent. pay that much attention to oh ah, right yeah okay yeah okay hey. Yeah, so my big loser is, I think, probably the most obvious one from Sunday, which was uh, Ayagura uh, crashing inexplicably in some respects out of uh, out of a victory when he was uh, ridiculously well placed to finish second. Um, a second would have uh, extended his championship to a, a very healthy uh, number, um, but um, he decided to, to risk it all and try and attack Tony Arbolino into turn nine. Um, you know, Agura is a really strong breaker and I was sort of looking at his race and thinking all he needs to do is wait until turn 15 and uh, Arbolino is not going to have much of a chance to uh, to respond to that. Um, but he kind of almost, it seemed like he caught Arbolino quicker than he was anticipating and then just did a bit of a rush job, outbreak, well, yeah, just tucked the front going into uh, to turn nine and um, yeah, from... A, a real position of strength you know the whole race we were sort of thinking this is this is going really well for for i and he can you know basically head to valencia and just need to you know top eight finish uh to wrap it up he now finds himself 9.5 points uh behind um with one race to go so um 
Yeah, a massive boo-boo from Aguro. I think it's his first crash out of a race all year, bar Portimao when we had that freak kind of 30-second shard on a turn two, which called other, you know, 11 other riders or 8, 10 other riders out. Um, and, and, you know, what a, what a time to just uh, chuck it all away. I mean, it was, uh, I, I still can't believe that he did it. I I do wonder if Aguro is wondering why everybody in the world is currently in his nightmare. And, you know, several days after the Grand Prix, I, I, he must still be thinking about it. I mean, it was probably the dumbest move of the whole season. I mean, we're talking about, you know, overall pitches of the championship and uh, Moto2 Moto has been quite a strange year. But, uh, um, I mean, he, had, he, he went in with a, what was it, um, an 8.5 lead? No, uh, or 3.5. 3.5. Yeah, 3.5. So, that, you know, he was back in control of the championship from Augusto Fernandez. Fernandez having his own issues with Jake Dixon. Like you said, Neil, I mean, that was, it was on a plate. Take the 20 points, go easy, just lock it out. And actually, watching, you know, the last couple of laps in Moto 2, there were some moments actually where I thought Agura was really pushing the front end. I was kind of thinking there's no way he can actually dump it and, and do what he did. But wow. And he was saying afterwards, he was saying, you know, second place wasn't enough in Malaysia because, um, you know, he really wanted to arrive at Valencia with a, a properly comfortable advantage. Um, so he said second place wasn't enough to have a comfortable advantage going to Valencia. I needed to win here. So what that says about his prospects of uh, of winning now, that, um, uh, you know, I think that shows that Aguro maybe doesn't look at Valencia favorably or the conditions that that there are there we know that he's maybe not the strongest rider in really cold conditions that we sometimes have there so um yeah it's uh the pendulum has been swinging back and forth between the pair for the past couple of weeks and uh, i wouldn't say it swung decisively yet to fernandez but you know you have to say that's a uh, if fernandez can't wrap it up from here then um he, he frankly doesn't deserve to, to win it overall yeah I, the thing is like you know, nobody goes into those sort of corners expecting to crash. They expect to be able to. They expect to come away for it with it. So of course you're going to try. Um, and I no, think Dave, you, no, you're a second position. You take the championship lead. It's, you, you don't need to try it. Like like Neil said, um, if you're not confident in the next race, then you have to try and get as many points as you can. So yeah, you're 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 going to try it. And I think the mistake was at turn nine, and this comes back to a point with Bastianini. I was talking to Peter Bombi earlier today, and he was like saying he didn't understand why um, Bastianini tried at turn uh, nine when turn fourteen was right there. You know, there is because of the way that turn fourteen works you've got that really you've got the long long uh, right of uh, turn 13 where people are taking a very wide line so there's always a door open just as we saw with Franco Morbidelli you can always try and stuff it down uh, uh, up the inside there and it's much safer it's much easier and it's a much better uh, place to try to, to try to pass so I think the mystery is why Ogura didn't wait until turn uh, turn 14 because I think he could have he could have done uh, done that there too I mean, there must be a serious level of disgust for Valencia. I mean, it's not like Augusto Fernandez is a serial winner at the circuit. Um, if anything, you'd think that Fernandez is going to have even more pressure now. Uh, but uh, yeah, incredible scenes from Moto2. Well, that pretty much brings the show to a wrap, guys. Thanks ever so much for listening. Um, send us any feedback through Patreon channels or wherever you get this podcast. Also on Twitter, you can find us on Paddock Pass Pod. Send us any comments. We'll be back with a quick show next week just to preview the final race of the season, but also listen out for the World Superbike Show, as we mentioned, from Argentina. Uh, that's all for now. Thanks for listening. This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, 
David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. I live with a French person now. Of course I'm going to say chapeau. <laughs> <laughs> She's listening. You're just trying to get brownie points. <laughs> All right. Uh, Dave, straight into Japan.